Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah 7, you probably know of a famous verse from there. Um, you know, there's always going to be this tension in living life for God that uh, we live in what is visible and we have to trust the God who's invisible. Anybody felt that tension before? That, you know, where we see the problem before us like uh, sickness or um, maybe it's a, a challenging situation at home or finances or, or whatever it may be. You, you see that right before you, but we're trusting in an invisible God. And and uh, how we deal with that tension will determine the course of our lives and maybe our eternity. Now, I want you to know that I don't mean that every faith test is the difference between heaven and hell, but what I'm saying is that saving faith is also living faith, that when we're really believing in Jesus, we're we're not just trusting in him for salvation, we're trusting in his person. And and that includes a whole lot. I think it's one of the reasons why um, a, good ta- a good test of faith is our obedience. Are we obedient to him? Because when we live in obedience to him, we demonstrate that we really, we really do trust him. And it's not just lip service or assent to some kind of a creed or something like that, which creeds are important too. Um, yes. Is God really invisible? He is to us now, isn't he? Yeah, he's visible to us in human form. Christ? As we, as humans see him, right? Right. Yes, I get I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. God's not left himself without evidence of him being there, and that, that certainly is true. Um, Paul does say somewhere uh, the invisible, talks about the invisible God, and so uh, we understand we can't see him in the fullness of his nature, but we can see the effects of him having been here and been there and his works, and so I'm trying to make the case tonight that there's not two separate kinds of faith, a saving faith and a living faith. Does that make sense? That's all one kind of faith, that we're, we're living in trust toward God. And so we are asked to trust in Christ, facts about Christ, yes, the living, abiding, personal Savior and Lord, God with us, we need to trust Him, yes? And so uh, that's what I want to challenge us with tonight. Isaiah 7 isn't first of all a Christmas passage. I don't. I don't want to disappoint. We have Christmas decorations on the stage. And by the way, I want to just call somebody out tonight. I overheard Lydia quoting from the Gambler from Kenny Rogers during her prayer time. I don't know what that was all about, but I want to come to the bottom of that. That's interesting. So, anyway, it's not particularly a Christmas passage. It's really about trusting God in troubled times and believing His promises. Um, when we don't trust God, it's it's kind of an implicit denial that he's not loving enough, he's not powerful enough, or he doesn't keep his promises. Okay, so when we don't trust him, that could be a failure in one of those areas of understanding. 
And so we want to trust him. We need to know his nature. We need to believe his promises. And uh, then the question becomes, what are we going to do when trouble comes? Because it does come. And I think this is the raw material of faith, uh, the faith, the faith life is made out of. I think there are, there are some people, and, and I've been there at times, where we want to put our faith life on hold till we get this problem figured out. And then once we get it, we'll rejoin our weekly services. We'll rejoin serving God in particular ways. And, but we got to get this, this uh, trouble figured out. But, but I think faith is meant to be lived and believed in the midst of difficult times. And we see that again and again in the scriptures. And so you can see that here in Isaiah 7. We'll come to it. We're referring to it a lot. Uh, there's a lot of historical detail here. And I want to ask this question. What, what should we do with that? What should we do with historical detail? And you can answer if you have an answer to that. I've got some options here. Let's, let's see if we can pick one. Uh, number one, we should ignore it and look for something that kind of speaks to us. Ignore the historical detail and just wait for something that kind of jumps out at us. Believe it or not, that's the approach a lot of people take when it comes to the Bible. It's just like, well, I don't, that doesn't speak to me, but this does. And so they find the one verse in the chapter that speaks. And there are some verses in this chapter that will do that, but, oh, we miss so much. Okay, a second option is, should we just assume that this isn't anointed as anointed as other parts of the Bible? Because there's a lot, what's that? All scriptures God breathed, right? Good. So number two is out then. Everybody in agreement with that? How about number three? Should we decide that the Old Testament isn't for us? No, I, I hope not. 77% of the Bible is Old Testament. Did you know that? 77% and, and actually a little more than that. Um, number four, should we acknowledge the details are part of the revelation and try to understand why God wanted it there. Okay, so there, that's going to take a little bit of work. F.F. Bruce, what's, what's that? Yeah, sure. Um, should we acknowledge the details are part of the revelation and try to understand why God wanted this here? Okay, so we're looking at what are the details? Why, why are they here? Why so much? I, I like not. I'm a history person, so I love this stuff, but I realize not everybody's like that. Not everybody gets a kick out of this. Some people really get a kick out of Psalms, and I, I like the Psalms, but if I'm choosing and I'm, I'm just showing all my cards, man, I love to dig into the historical stuff. And other people are like, man, I don't like that at all. I like the Psalm. That's fine. We don't get to choose the Bible, right? We conform ourselves to it. And so if I'm not liking the Psalms enough, that's a problem in me i got to deal with. Right and the historical thing too, vice versa. We need to come to terms with that. What's that? There is history in the Psalms. That's true. So there's no getting around it. Yes. Sure. The phone books, that's what I call it, the phone books of the Bible.
Yeah, that is. That is. It's good to to read through those things. There are little tidbits in there that are really um, devotional and powerful in a way. And, and the names are there for a reason. Um, the secrets of the Bible. It is, but I, I have a conviction that I don't think the Bible is trying to keep secrets. I think it's trying to unveil who God is. Yes, not everything is revealed. The secret things belong to the Lord. Hmm. Yep, to the hungry heart. Now, Jesus talked about that with his parables, didn't he? So F.F. F. Bruce, in, um, who's a late Pauline scholar, he said... Um, he was asked about his studies and how he went about studying the Bible. And he said, uh, at one level, and perhaps this is the most important level, I approached the Bible with the readiness and an expectation to hear the voice of God there. But there is no conflict between that more devotional use of the Bible and the academic study. Did you hear that? that there's not conflict between, like we sit down and we read it, and we, we want to hear what God has to say there. But but I found that that goes hand in hand with looking into the details of what the Bible says. And so uh, I think it's not either or, it's both. And so we go into all the detail and we dig out the principles that are there. And for that, it takes work. And so I'm calling you tonight, I'm challenging us. Um, if you find that Bible study gets dry or it becomes work, persist. It will only get better. The more you know about what God's Word says and the different things that are happening there, you'll see insights that you didn't see before, and perhaps it might even change what you thought you saw there before and realize, now that I understand this better, I was wrong. And this this is what this is talking about. And there's been many times I've come to that conclusion myself. So... Yeah, it does, and the Bible helps to interpret itself, and that's a really important principle is that as we, we go, don't get frustrated if we don't understand everything the first time. If you go through it and you pick up something and you go through it again and pick up something, pretty soon there becomes like this expertise at all of this, and so I think that's really important. But we dig out these principles, and there's no, there's no shortcut for this. And to do this really well, um, we should be on the same page, and we should be asking these questions, okay? When we look at the Bible, what does it say? That's the first question. Okay, that sounds super simple, like we're, we're really just looking at what does it say. And then the second one sounds like it, but it's not quite the same. Okay, uh, What does it mean? Because sometimes the Bible is speaking figuratively. And so what it says on the surface isn't what it's trying to 
really say. Do you, you understand what I mean? That's not a hidden or a mystical thing. The clues are right there in the text. But what does it mean? And then the last question is an application question is now that we know what it means, this is the this is just the pure reading level. This is the interpretation level because we all have to do interpretation, right? And then we come down to this and we're doing the application level. Like what does what do, what do we do about it? How do we respond to this? And I'll tell you, in this passage that we haven't even come to yet, because we're dialoguing about it a little bit, um, the what we should do about it is we need to trust God. Can I just tell you the, the end game here? So we need to trust God above all other things. Ultimate means the final thing that we trust and the most, okay, is God. Okay? There may be other things that we have lesser confidence in, but God, we have ultimate confidence in. Okay, so those—that's really important as we look through this test, text. This is what we should. This is what we should do about it. All right. So keep these questions in mind as we read through this, and we're going to read through chapter seven here, and then we'll talk about some of the background of it. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram. And Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. Okay, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. Okay, and the tree, as the trees of the forest are shaken in the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, uh, Sheir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field and say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs, <laughs> the firewood of, of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah, Aram and... Uh, sorry, sorry, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. And yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Um, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That would be one of those places that you probably, in your devotional reading, go, ooh, that's good. And it is good, because we're not going to have strength in self-confidence. We're going to have strength in God confidence, okay? You understand that when it comes to the challenges of life, it's not because we can handle it. We, and I think probably Americans are the worst at this. And then we're a subset of Americans. We're Alaskans. If anybody can handle it, it's us. And this becomes a problem when it comes to dealing with real problems in life because we don't do it in our own strength. It's by the hand of the Lord, right? Even when they're rebuilding the temple later on, um, I think Zechariah the prophet says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, that you're going to accomplish this. You're not going to do it through pure human, human strength. 
but by the power of the Spirit of God, this will be seen through, even though it looks like an impossibility. And so this is a call to trust in the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. That sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? And then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of these two kings that you dread will be laid waste. And the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your servant, uh, excuse me, and on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah he will bring the king of Assyria. This is a problem, okay? You've replaced two enemies with a worse one, okay? And that's what he's telling him here is you got rid of these two. Now something worse is coming. In verse um, 18 here, it says, In that day the Lord uh, will whistle and the flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria, they will all come and they will settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices in the rocks and on the thorn bushes and at all the watering holes. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and your private parts. Forgive me, if you have the ESV, it says feet. And if you have the NASB, it says legs. Those are euphemisms for something else. And to cut off your beard also, in that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk that they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. Pause here for a moment. And I want you to notice here that milk and honey was the promise of abundance, wasn't it? But like if somebody said to you, you get pizza well, whatever it is. Let's just say prime rib, okay? Good. Man, that sounds like land of abundance. But that's all you'll ever get from now on. Suddenly, the blessing turns to curse. You know what I'm saying? And maybe not with prime rib because you could see yourself eating that for a few weeks. But uh, here we've got curds and honey, and that's all they're going to be eating because in that day, in every place um, where these were, where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand uh, silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and the thorns, and they will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. So he's talking about a really bad time coming to the land of Judah. Okay, let's talk about some things that have happened here. So I want you to notice that the story moves ahead a little bit here. Last uh, chapter, what was happening in chapter 6, Isaiah 6. You know Isaiah 6 well. 
King Uzziah died, okay? King Uzziah died, and I think I have a timeline here. You can see uh, Uzziah's death is 740 B.C., if, it, if I'm looking at this right, 740 B.C., okay? And Ahaz doesn't become king until 732. What's that tell us about chapter 6 and 7? 740, now 730. About between seven and eight years have passed, at least between these two chapters. And so he sees the Lord in this exalted vision, and the next account that we have from him is eight years later. So some time has passed. It's good to see these gaps in the Bible. There's a gap in uh, one of the Exodus chapters that's about 40 years long, and we don't take into account some of the, <laughs> you know, like, we think every day is going to be like burning bush day, but you know that there's some days that are just not like that. They're just everyday stuff, and that's part of our spirituality too, is dealing with days when there aren't uh, burning bushes and where there aren't big miracles, and it's just the mundane stuff of life. Now, that doesn't mean there's not the miraculous and that God's not there. It just means that the spectacular things that the Bible often reports, it doesn't tell us all of the mundane details that happen in between those things. And so if you haven't seen a miracle in a while, expect that God's going to send a miracle at some point because he's a miracle-working God. And even though it's not a perhaps an everyday occurrence in the way that we'd like, we'd love to live on mountaintops and for everything to be spectacular. But I've seen, too, where sometimes people get bored even with that. Think about this. Every day, Israel saw a fire by night and a cloud by day. And that was to represent the presence of God. And they sinned and got tired even in that. The problem wasn't with God. It was with us. We as humans, we get bored with things like that. I'm going off my notes here. Let's get back to them. All right, so something like seven to eight years has passed. All right, let's talk about who Judah is. Who's Judah in this story? If you know, do you know? Okay, so a southern kingdom, okay? Judah, at least at this point, is is uh, the southern kingdom. After Genesis, Judah usually isn't referring to a person. Okay? After Genesis, when the actual historical person Judah dies, it usually goes from there to referring to the tribe of Judah. Okay? So that's one of Jacob's sons, one of the sons of Israel. And then after Solomon, after Solomon has died, when you hear Judah, it's usually referring to the southern kingdom. So that's kind of a good timeline to follow. After Solomon, after you read through that portion of the Bible and you get past Solomon, if it talks about Judah, you can almost bank that it's talking about the southern kingdom and not just the tribe of Judah, all those that are gathered in the southern kingdom. Now, if there's exceptions to that, it's going to, the text will indicate that with something like uh, a genealogy. If you see Judah in a genealogy, it's not talking about the tribe. It's usually not talking about the, um, the southern kingdom. It's talking about the person. That makes sense? And then also, when it talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah, you kind of get an indication of where that's at. So uh, just pay close attention to the context, and we see that. Okay, so Judah is the southern kingdom in this story. Who is Aram? Okay, you can see Aram here. All right, can you see where Israel's at on this? Let's see if this works. 
It doesn't work. Oh, maybe now. How about there? Okay, can you see Aram right there? So here's Assyria, this big empire that includes Babylon at this point. Babylon will emerge and overcome all of this. But right now it's Assyria, and then you have Aram, and there's another name for Aram, Syria, not Assyria. Syria and Assyria are separate, so keep that in mind, that when you hear Syria, it's referring to Aram, the Arameans, um, Aramaic, I believe is connected with this people group here. And then you have Israel to the north, okay, so when you hear Aram, um, this is typically a foe to God's people. So about uh, 100 years earlier, there, were, there was the king of the north, Ahab, and the king of the south, Jehoshaphat, and they went to war against Aram. Remember that? And Jehoshaphat's like, Ahab brings out all his prophets, and they say, the Lord will give us success and all of that. And Jehoshaphat on two occasions says, Don't, isn't there a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of? Yes, but I hate him because he always prophesies bad about me. I, I laugh every time I read that. I hate him because he prophesies bad about me. Well, let's hear what he has to say. And so they bring him in. And, of course, they end up going to war against Aram, and Aram kills Ahab in battle. Okay, so usually you'll have uh, Aram on the outside as the foe, but for some reason now the northern kingdom of Israel um, has chosen to go along with Aram against the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's something wrong in that, like... There shouldn't be fighting between these two portions of the nation. Nation Actually, they would be stronger together, wouldn't they? Like if they were reunited and not divided by their own, I know God was in it, but there ha, there's a selfishness in it too that has caused them to, they would have been stronger together, but they, they weren't together. And so Aram is Syria, the frequent foe of God's people, but now they've joined with the northern kingdom to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. What's, what's unique about... I'm getting ahead of myself here, but what's unique about Judah? What do they have to look forward to? The Messiah, the king, the son of David is going to come from Judah. They've got this promise that goes all the way back to their patriarch that the scepter will never depart from Judah. Always there will be a king that's a king from Judah. And we we serve that king and we worship that king and we celebrate the coming of that king during Christmas time. He's from the tribe of Judah. All right, and then another group we we need to deal with is a group that is called Ephraim in this passage more than by any other name. <clears throat> Ephraim is Israel. It's the northern kingdom. Okay, so just as Judah, this is called synecdoche, where uh, you take the biggest part and you call um, the rest of it by that. We do this, my, my go-to illustration of this is you call your car wheels. Well, your wheels aren't the only thing on your car, but it describes something that's significant about it. Okay, And so Judah describes the southern kingdom, even though it's more than Judah. Ephraim describes the northern kingdom of Israel, even though it's more than Ephraim. Why, why is that? Well, five times in this chapter, verse 2, 5, 8, 9, 17 they call Israel, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, even though it's got all those other tribes mixed in with it. Only once in this passage, in verse 1, is it called Israel. Okay, And Ephraim 
uh, is it's called Ephraim. Anybody want to guess? Well, I've already said it, but guess why this is the case is because it's the largest and the most powerful of the northern kingdom. And there's some good reasons for this. Um, before Jacob died, Jacob, who is also called Israel, right? He took Joseph's sons and he adopted them. Do you remember this? And he put his hand on Ephraim. And Joseph said, no, he's the younger of the two. And he said, I know what I'm doing here. And he blessed Ephraim because he was going to be the largest of those tribes. And so Ephraim and Manasseh became sons. And there's a suggestion from one text where it says, just as Reuben and Simeon are sons, so will Ephraim and Manasseh be sons. And some scholars think that there was a replacement that took place there that made Ephraim a little bit like a substitute firstborn. And so that could be part of this. I'm, I'm not necessarily sold on that, but it's an option here. But what we do see is that Ephraim blossoms and grows, and it becomes the largest of the northern tribes. And so when they describe Israel, they describe Israel as Ephraim. And I think Ephraim is used here instead of Israel in one particular reason is to remind us that these are brothers that are fighting against one another. Ephraim and Judah, by adoption, you know, Ephraim was Jacob's grandson, but he adopted them as sons. Now they're brothers. Why are they fighting against one another? And that's the question we ought to be asking in this passage. And so they're in the same family. And then we have up here in this green portion, the Assyrians. And what we need to know about the Assyrians is that they're a powerful empire in the north that's a threat to everybody in the region. They have the power to do whatever they want to do for the most part, except for where God stops them. They're led by a guy at this point named Tiglath-Pileser the third. They have other gods. They have nasty ways in battle, and they have a strong army. And whenever they conquer, they boast that it was their gods that gave them success at doing so. And so they've got this, there's this threat to about everybody in the region, okay? To Aram, Assyria is a threat. To Israel, Assyria is a threat. And to Judah, Assyria is, Assyria is a threat. So we see in verses 1 and 2, the known threat, okay? I'm not talking about Assyria at this point. I'm talking about the known threat that we see here in verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jothan, uh, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel. So Rezin is the king of Aram. Pekah is the uh, king of Israel. They march up to fight against Jerusalem. So this is the known threat, and Ahaz is the son of what was considered a pretty godly man, Jotham. He's considered pretty godly. But Ahaz is not quite so godly. And so there's this threat, and he sees that, okay, individually we can beat Israel. Probably individually we could stand a chance against Aram. But those two combined together, I don't know from a natural mindset how we could win that battle. Do you understand that? Um, there are some battles that look unwinnable without God. Okay, and that's that's I think the case that that Ahaz uh, is dealing with here. He sees this as unwinnable, and their plan is: notice here, we want to march up and fight against Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. Now it calls um, the throne of uh, the throne of uh, Ahaz, the house of David. Now, the house of David was told, 
Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So you have Aram and Israel together. And so what happens is Ahaz and his people are shaken. They're shaken to the core. They're scared about what this is going to mean. Okay. And so that's the, the case of any time we receive some bad news or some scary news is, is to get to let that fear kind of overtake us. Well, it appears to me that Ahaz has no way to deal with this. He has no deep-rooted relationship with God, and we see that here. But even more, we see it in other texts that relate to this. Like, did you know of Ahaz that he sacrificed one of his own sons? He's not a, he's not a good king. He let altars remain. In fact, there was a time he shut down the temple and he put little shrines on corners where people could worship other gods. And so he's not a godly king, and he's looking for other things to grasp at to give him confidence. And we could take a lesson from this is that let's trust in the Lord and let's not grasp for straws and for other things. And God does use other things. God does use medicine, like, but that's not where our ultimate confidence is. You with me? And God uses money, but that's not where ultimate confidence is. It's not in money. He's the provider of those things. He's the God of health, right? He can take care of us in that regard. Um, So there's a lot of things that are like this. And Isaiah comes to prophesy. Um, You can see that in verse 3 here. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Sha'ir Jashub, I'm guessing that, not that pronunciation, but uh, take your son with you. It's more important, more important than my pronunciation is what it means, all right, because so, it means something here. Um, the prophet going to see Ahaz means that the Lord hasn't abandoned him to the will of Assyria or the will of these two northern nations, you see that? The very fact that the prophet is coming to speak. And if the Holy Spirit is working on our heart, God hasn't abandoned us. If um, God cares enough to send somebody to speak to us, he's not abandoned us. And that's the case here is that the prophet comes and we, we see this indicates the care of the Lord. And the name of the son even testifies to this. Sha'ir Jushub means a remnant will return. So whatever is coming you will not be completely wiped out. That's good news, isn't it? So he takes his son along, and I imagine the introductions are, hello, king, you know me, of course, this is my son, and his name is a remnant shall return. And that would have said something, I would have thought, but maybe not. And then he tells him this. He, he says that typical stuff that you say and you hear said in the Bible, like fear not or stay calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart, okay? And it's not enough to tell somebody that. There needs to be something that goes along with life. It's not just a prohibition against fear. There needs to be a direction towards faith. And that you find always in the Bible is that the accompaniment with do not fear comes with a reason not to. You you know, sometimes we say like, just don't do that. And we make it all about prohibitions. And it's really hard not to do that when we're focusing on not doing that. It's so much easier when that's been replaced with what we ought to be doing instead. And what we ought to be doing is looking in faith to God. And so then he says this. He says, he tells them the plans of the enemy. I would have thought this would have hurt faith a little bit, but it seems God's got wisdom in all of this and the reason uh, he does this. 
um, he says, meet Ahaz at the end of the pool, and he tells him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart. Because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, of, and Aram and of the son of Remaliah, Aram and Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin. He's telling him, you plotted, he's plotted your ruin. And uh, then he says to him, um, they, they're going to say, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. And then he gives what the Lord says in response. And I, I find this a little bit interesting I know uh, a lot of times the the wisdom is something like this, is don't talk about the negative side of things because it will only create more fear. Don't repeat what the enemy said. Like if you would have heard some of uh, the people that I heard growing up, they would have told Isaiah, you shouldn't say that to him because that's confessing the negative. Well, what he does is he exposes it. Do you know that God is not intimidated by the threats of people? And he, he's not less powerful than the words of people. And so a lot of times we give this superstitious power to words where God is the one that we're trusting and not the words that were said. So they said these things, Isaiah says. And what he does in response to that is he says, but this is what the Lord says. Whatever anybody else says, God's word is superior to it. You with me? And so we look to that, and his, his word is this, um, it will not take place. Okay, they're, gonna, they're planning on doing this, but it will not take place. And that's good news, isn't it? It's not going to take place. It's not going to go down like that. Uh, it will not happen. Uh, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. What is, what is that? Because he's going to repeat the same thing with um, the son of Remaliah. He's going to say, the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. Uh, sorry, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the, the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. What's, what's he referring to here? First, first is the nation, right? Okay, and then, so if the nation is Aram, what's the capital of the nation? It's Damascus is the capital. Okay, the oldest city in the world, you know that? Damascus, the oldest existing city in the world. And then um, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Okay, what what do you think he's trying to say here? The nation's only as strong as its capital. The capital is only as strong as its leader. All God has to do is take that leader out, and the nation crumbles like a house of cards. Okay, do you see that? That's the thing that's being said. Sometimes we look at the gathering of the storm, and we don't realize that if one key uh, ingredient of that is taken away, the whole storm goes away. And this is what God's saying to Ahaz. This be a prime place for Ahaz to say, yes, I believe you, Lord. But he doesn't. Okay, so then he, of course, says the same thing about um, Rezin's the king of Aram. Okay, so, and he reigns from Damascus. And he's joined with um, the son of Remaliah in this uh, pursuit against Judah. All right, so then it says this in verse 8. 
Um, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. I think I'll have to go back to look at this one, to this timeline. All right, take a look at this timeline here. Okay, so we have uh, this prophecy coming somewhere around 732 B.C. Okay, time's moving backwards, of course. Okay, within 65 years of that prophecy, he's saying this, that Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will be too shattered to be a people. Okay, so he's saying what, what you are afraid of is going to be so fragmented it can't even hold together within 65 years. The problem with that for, for some people is that the fall of Samaria happens because the Assyrians come in in 722 B.C. We know that for a fact. We know the, we know the year. 722 B.C. is the year the Assyrians sack Samaria. And we know that their last major deportation of individuals is in six, um, 669. I think that's 62 or three years from this prophecy. So it fits within that prophetic timeline is within 65 years, Ephraim be too shattered to even be a people. They're not, they're not even a nation anymore because they've been torn apart by the Assyrian conquest. And so this prophecy, which Isaiah prophesies ahead of time, uh, comes true. So true, as a matter of fact, that there's a lot of liberal scholars that say, oh, the only way that could have happened is some later textual critic went back and put that in Isaiah's text. Well, if he would have, there's better places for him to put it. Just puts it right in the middle of this, and it shows up, because I think Isaiah said it right where it is, as a prophecy, and then God showed that he knew in advance what was going to take place there. So the Lord speaks to him about all of this. The known threat is that there's this uh, two nations that are coming against Judah, and what should he do with that? How are we? How is he to respond, and how are we to respond to those kind of threats? And then the last thing he says is, "Strength comes from the Lord, not self, not believing in self, but from the Lord." In nine b, if you don't, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you'll not stand at all. Now, let's talk quickly about the unknown threat. We only have about uh, 10 or 15 minutes here, but let's talk about this. In verse 10, he picks up, uh, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And this could be a latter part of this same conversation. And possibly, and I think this is probably the case, this is a later encounter where Isaiah goes back to Ahaz and responds to him again. Because we hear in another place, uh, in Second Kings chapter 16, verse 7, that Ahaz sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I am your servant and vassal. What are you, what are you doing, Ahaz? Why are, you, why are you contacting Assyria now? Well, here's what he's going to do. is He's going to get Assyria on his side to fight against Israel and Aram. The big threat in the region. He's going to ask him to be his big buddy and his pal come to their aid, help them to fight against this lesser threat. It's like if you had some pretty evil neighbors and you invited the devil to be on your side against them. Like the devil's like, sure, I'll come into your house and help you fight against them. You know, um, there's something like this that happened in in World War II is that I think it was uh, Nazi Germany made made a pact with Poland that we will not invade. And the next day they invaded. 
You know what I'm talking about? It's that kind of thing. In Don Richardson's book, I don't know if you've read Peace Child, but if you haven't, it's a great book. He talks about on Netherlands, New Guinea, um, there's a tribe of cannibalistic people that they would do, they practice a ritual called fattening with friendship. You ever heard of that? So they would invite neighbors from neighboring villages over, and they would treat them real nice, and they'd smile a lot, and they would feed them, and then they'd get them real nice and fat. And when they're not paying attention, they would jump on them, and they would kill them, and then they would cut them up and eat them. They fattened them with friendship. They acted all kind and friendly, but they had they knew all along their real goal was that they were going to eat those people. And I think Assyria, I don't know exactly what their motives are. We're not told that their motives are this is what's going to happen. All we know is that Isaiah prophesies that you're going to let this, this nation in and it's going to be your ruin. Like days are coming that you, had, you never would have thought would have come because you're going to say yes to this group of people. And so they warn them in, in this regard. But there's a, a threat here. And uh, he says to them, come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. Okay, So now he's forming alliances with other nations, which um, was often discouraged in the Old Testament, right? I mean, you've seen probably, I think Asa was one of these. Um, there was a, a godly king who wanted to make a pact with Egypt in order to fight against another nation. And God said, no, you've already paid the dues. That money's gone. Tell those warriors to go home. There was another time where they tried to get Israel to be on their side, the northern kingdom, to join the southern kingdom. And God said, no. And so oftentimes these kind of pacts were discouraged, and probably for two reasons. Number one is that God's people should have trusted the Lord who always gave them victory. Okay, instead of relying upon these other nations for help. After all, their whole history is of one where they would conquer nations that were mightier than themselves. That was part of their testimony. Og, king of Bashan, Sihon, uh, king of the Amorites, they beat those two guys, and those two guys were incredible legends in that area. And they defeated them. And they defeated the Canaanites, who previous generations said, we are grasshoppers compared to them. How did that happen? Only because God was on their side, not because they were so superior. And you see it again and again with superior forces that God uh, allows. He leads his people in triumphal procession in that. The Lord always gave them victory over more powerful people when they were obedient, when they relied upon him. And a second reason that I think God discouraged these kinds of alliances is that those they made alliances with often led to compromise with them. So when allegiances require of you to compromise your faith and principles, or maybe they're all getting ready to go to battle and the Assyrians say, all right, we're going to go to battle, but let's all sacrifice to our gods. Israel can't do that. Judah can't do that as they prepare to go. There's, there's compromise that happens, and this is one of the reasons the Bible says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do you know that's more than a marriage text? It's bigger than that. It's talking about being in league with those who are unbelievers because the life direction is going different ways. So be careful because it can lead to compromise. You put yourself in a position uh, where you can do wrong. See, the kings who were praised in the 
in the Old Testament. It's not that God has a problem with them putting themselves in a better position. I, I'd like to think of this as like storing up for retirement or whatever, God, or paying for your medical insurance or whatever. God doesn't see that as contrary to faith, I don't think. Okay? Uh, you are bettering your position. And the proof that I would use for that is that while Israel was relying upon the Lord, the kings that were often praised in the Old Testament were kings that built up their defenses and their fortifications. Like, some people would say, are you trusting God or not? If you're trusting God, why do you need walls? Well, he encouraged them to build the walls, didn't he? That It's not either or. It's wisdom and faith that work together here. And so a lot of times people got in problems when they started trusting in their defenses and their armies more than God. David kind of did that, even though I don't know that it was necessarily that he was trusting in that more. But when he numbered his troops, he was making the practical statement that I trust in chores, uh, horses and chariots, horses and harriots, that I trust in those things. When he had said previously, some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the Lord our God. And then he numbered the fighting troops. Why? That's not what gave him victory. Do you see the problem there is that he was putting his confidence, or at least in a practical way, stating that his confidence was in that rather than in the Lord. So it's not that alliances are always wrong, but they usually came with strings attached, like sacrifice and other gods, or in some ways saying that we can't do this without your help, or putting their confidence in the good graces of the Assyrians, which is a big mistake. As if the Assyrians were more powerful than God, could care for them more than God, had their best interest at heart more than God did. And so in the second prophecy that comes in verse 10 and following, um, Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ask God for a sign. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. Big, a big sign. It could be smaller. It could be huge. Okay, notice it says, from the deepest depths or the highest heights. Who has the NLT here? If you have it, uh, read verse 11 from chapter 7 for us. Okay, thank you. We'll pause right there for a moment. So he's saying you can ask for a sign. Notice, this is Isaiah the prophet saying to Ahaz, ask for a sign. This is not... Ahaz going, God, you've said this in your word. You've told me over and over again, but still I need a sign of confirmation. Okay, that's not this. This is, a, uh, this is Isaiah trying to stir the faith of somebody who has already made up their mind that they're going to trust in something else. So he says, look, you need a sign? He's trying to prompt them. Trust the Lord. Ask for a sign and God will give it to you. And here's the smokescreen. Listen, sometimes people say really spiritual things, and they do it as a dodge. Okay, and that's what that's what happens here, is that Ahaz knows his knows his Bible some, and knows his history some, and so he says in verse um, twelve, "I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test." Wow, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Like, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I don't need a sign. No, you don't need a sign because you've already decided that you're not going to trust him. That's the real thing that's going on here. But he's trying to act like 
I can't violate this scriptural principle when that's not what's the issue here at all. Well, the response to refusal to believe is an address here to the house of David. Okay, Verse 13, then Isaiah said, Here now, you house of David. Here now, you house of David. It's not enough for you to try the patience of humans. Will you also try the patience of my God also? Look at this. He calls him the house of David for the second time in this passage. I thought this is really interesting. In the book of Isaiah, house of David, uh, I think, occurs nine times in all of this book. There's two of them here in this passage. And um, the fact that it uses the house of David is that it was a way of addressing the whole throne. Maybe maybe it's that there's a co-regency that's happening with Hezekiah, as you can see here, but I don't think we're that far in yet. Uh, you know, a plurality of kings, and so it addresses them, the house of David. But Isaiah's dealing with Ahaz, so I don't think that's a good option. Maybe it suggests that this is more than a person presently on the throne that's being dealt with. Maybe. But I think probably this is a reminder that, listen, you're not trusting the Lord, and you're the house of David. You have a legacy of faith. And not only that, but you have a promise that this dynasty will last. So God has already promised you the victory. Why are you, um, why are you diminishing your faith or acting like you're more spiritual here? You see the principle of this when Isaiah says, ask for a sign. This is not that we should always be asking for signs. Sometimes if God says, I will confirm something, sure, that's fine. But the principle is ask for a sign when God tells you to ask for a sign. And here he does, and Ahaz refuses. And so it's true that sometimes the Lord is angered in earlier generations by people who tested him by questioning his goodness and ability and asking for sign after sign after sign when they never intended for obedience. But now... Ahaz is pretending to be righteous, but he still plans on disobedience. He's still going to do things in the strength of others, in the strength of the Assyrians. He's going to pay tribute to them. In fact, he's going to take some of the temple treasure that people have paid in their tithes, and he's going to give it to the Assyrians. Did you know that? He takes from the temple, and he gives it to the Assyrians. That's a misappropriation of funds, I think, don't you? He took it and he gave it to them. Well, David is referenced in Isaiah um, seven times, sorry, including two in this chapter. And whenever it refers to the promise of David or the house of David or David in Isaiah, um, it's a reminder that God made a promise to David about an eternal throne and that David's God will see it done. And so the constant use through the rest of Isaiah's prophecy, suggests in chapter, in chapter 7 that it's an ironic call to greatness for Ahaz, that you're part of the house of David even though you're not acting like it. You need to act like it. Live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. People of faith, live in faith. People who've received the promise of God, live in the promise of God. That's what he's saying to him in this. And this happens in other places in Scripture where people are called better than they are. You know that? When Abraham, before he's had any children, his name is changed from Abram, prince, to Abraham, which is what? Father of nations. And how about Gideon, who's called a mighty man of valor when he's hiding? 
right? God, it's almost as if God, I know your identity and you're not living up to it. I'm calling you out of this into something better. And Peter, solid as a rock when he's flaky. One moment he's here, one moment he's there, he's all over the place. He's impulsive. That's unrock-like. And yet God calls him, Jesus calls him Peter, the rock. And so he knows us better than we are. So the difference here is that there are personal names. Isaiah calls Ahaz the house of David as if he's putting him in his place. Like if we do something that isn't very Christ-like and someone says to us, you're a Christian, that should put us in our place. And so it serves as a rebuke and a reminder of what he should be. Notice in verse 13, after in verse 11, he says, Ask the Lord your God for a sign. In verse 13, he says, Will you try the patience of my God? So he's taking God back from Ahaz as if he, like you're not acting like he's your God at all. But he is my God. And so he challenges him on that as if there's distance now between Ahaz and God. He can see it for the first time. Ahaz is not loyal to Yahweh in his unbelief. He would rather try to gain the favor of Assyria and Tiglath-Pileser than Yahweh. And it hits, and in his unbelief, he would rather try to um, have the help of other nations and the help of God. And it shows that he doesn't believe. There's been a lot of debate about 714. We're about out of time, but I want to do the best that I can with this. When Isaiah says, this will be a sign for you that a virgin will be a child, he uses the Hebrew word Alma, okay? And this means young maiden of marrying age, and it implies virgin, okay? But what Isaiah was probably pointing to, there's two prominent theories here. Individually, is that he was either pointing to his own wife, okay, which comes out in the next chapter, or he's pointing to one of the uh, ladies in the royal court in the house of David. That there's going to be what would be known as um, a partial fulfillment followed by uh, an ultimate fulfillment later on. Okay, so there's going to be this young woman who's going to be with child, and before that child gets to be this old, those kings that are in the way, they'll be destroyed. And we know that they are, because as soon as um, Ahaz makes a uh, a plea to Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrians, they go down to Damascus and they conquer the city and they kill Rezin. So it happens within a short time. That kid's not even very old yet. This baby that was to be born is not very old yet. But that was only a symbolic precursor to the later one who will come. So we need to know that there's an immediate fulfillment, but there's an echo that goes down to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Because when the Septuagint translates this Hebrew passage, Alma, it uses the word parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin. And that's more settled. Alma is a little bit ambiguous about whether she's a virgin or not. She's a young woman. But when it gets to parthenos, and that's where Matthew picks up, he says this virgin will be, look, this is an echo of what Isaiah talks about because that whole chapter 7 is leading into chapter 8 and chapter 9. And you know what's in chapter 9? Right. Right? Chapter 9, verse 6 talks about his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I can't wait to get to that passage. That's, to me, uh, so profound. It's more anointed than all of this history stuff.
laugh a little. I'm, I'm joking, right? You know I'm joking. So anyway, this uh, prophecy starts the clock ticking. This baby in league with the fall of these other kings are going to serve as a sign that God knew what he was doing all along and that Ahaz should have trusted him. And instead, um, he didn't. And so you see this divine figure, but you see a prophecy that is um, partially fulfilled and then later fulfilled in Christ. Like there's an immediate partial fulfillment, and this happens again and again in Scripture. Let me mention a couple places, and then we're just about out of time here. Genesis 3.15, when when Eve receives the promise of a descendant who will crush the head of the serpent, there's an immediate fulfillment that she has a descendant, Cain, right? Um, Luther's translation says, I've gotten a man-child, even the Lord, as if Eve thought this is the promised one that's coming. Okay, I don't know how accurate that is to what the intent of the Hebrew is, but there's a partial fulfillment, and then there's a later, later fulfillment. And then also with Isaac and Christ, you see there's a, there's a miraculous son, but that's not the miraculous son, right, with the definite article in front of it, right? The miraculous son is Jesus. And you see this picture in Genesis 22:18 when Abraham takes Jacob, uh, excuse me, uh, Isaac up the mountain and is prepared to sacrifice, and he says... Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. As if this was a dry practice run of something that was going to happen later to its fullest significance. Like the sacrifice of Isaac was an object lesson for when a son of Abraham, a son of God, would be sacrificed on that same mountain. Come on, do you, isn't that exciting to know that like there, here's the partial fulfillment and there's a later fulfillment. And you can see it in Solomon and Christ in Second Samuel chapter seven, it seems as if the prophecy goes back and forth between the immediate descendant and the future descendant who will be uh, the one who sits on the throne of the house of David perpetually. And so, um, all of these things are pointing to the fact that they should trust in the Lord and that He will come through and give them the complete fulfillment. He will bring to full purpose his promise of a descendant to the house of David. And even this, I didn't talk about this, but the plan of Aram and the plan of Israel was to set up some puppet king, some son of Tabil, who we we don't know who it is, but it's a puppet king that's going to be set up. And that should have been a clue to Ahaz, this ain't going to happen. Because God promised that there would always be a descendant of David who would sit on the throne. They're telling me they're going to destroy the city and they're going to kill the line of David and they're going to put another king up. That can't happen, not if God's promises are true. But they chose to, he chose to ignore that and to trust in this other source. And I want to challenge us tonight with this because we're out of time. Is that um, God wants us to know that uh, we can trust in him. We should trust him ultimately. And any other thing that we try to put our faith in will show him to be hollow in comparison. And in fact, uh, what follows in 10 through the rest of the chapter is a demonstration. If you want to trust in Assyria, let me show you what that's going to look like. And he lets them go to their own devices so that at the end of it all, they see that you can't trust in those things. Ultimately, they'll let you down. They'll fail you. But you can trust in me and he'll bring you through. And so I want to encourage you tonight that what you're facing, trust in the Lord 
as your, your source and your help, and he will not disappoint you. Amen. Thanks for your grace and attention tonight as we work through some history. Let's stand together and have a word of prayer. <clears throat> yeah. I agree with that. That it, when we're trusting the Lord, we're we've 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 signed the document and we've said this life is yours, and there is human freedom that's wrapped up in that somehow. There's also uh, just God's ability to bring about something different than what we imagine. After all, Israel was looking for a a political leader when Jesus came, and that's not what they got. What they got is something better. And they didn't know it. And so let's trust that what he has for us is better than what we would have for ourselves. Okay, Father, thank you, Lord, for a word that reminds us to trust in you. If we got lost in the detail or somehow some things didn't connect for us, I pray that we would take away this fact, is that we look to you and stand strong in you and not in something else. And uh, when the challenge comes, you'll see to it that those who trust in you, stand firm and are planted. And we're praying for your help, for great faith, and I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with believers who share like faith so that we can be strong in you. If we're not strong in our faith, we'll not be strong at all. So help us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.